Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm moving, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show 468. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Straight into the new year there. We're going, we're ploughing straight ahead. And a couple of things. Got some new glasses so I can actually see now the screen. Oh, hey, man, it's getting shot. i tell you what it is. I was in that mixed-up little world there where... I needed reading glasses to see me keyboard, but also the computer screen was a little bit further away. It was no good as well. That was starting to kind of fade out, but I, and I couldn't see with the reading glasses. So apparently, and I didn't realise, you can get office lenses, which everything you can see within like a, a three metre radius. So now I've got these office lenses on me specs. <laughs> I've got 20-20 vision, fucking, you know, like long distance, but things close up, reading, you know, but... Wow, it's lovely to see see the bloody font on the screen without it being blurred. So, I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. We have Song for Asking by Carmelo Raphael, which was originally published in Stories for Chip, a tribute to Samuel R. Delaney. And if you look back, way back in, way back in the history of Starship Sofa, somewhere there, I did an interview with Chip Delaney. Go on, not... I can't, it must have been about four years ago, something like that, it might even be longer to be quite honest. So we've got that coming up as well. But before that, I want to just t- talk about my little, probably my best Christmas present. And I loved it, to be quite honest. And it came out of the blue and Melanie bought it for us, my wife. And she says, oh, i just seen it. In, and I was in, in England, we've got TK Maxx. TK Maxx, that's right. And I think over in America, I'm not sure I... It's it's TJ Maxx, is it? And I'm not sure. It must be in Australia, and you know, it must be all around the world. To be quite honest, Melly picked up this box set, and it's the Penguin Science Fiction Postcards, a hundred book covers in one box, and and that's exactly what it is. And it's but it's the the Penguin ones, and it's all from that history of Penguin. You know, when it first started, and right through its its age. You know what I mean? What I'll do is I'll read the little in in cover inside it. It is actually a, a box, but on the inside there, there is a, a description. Penguin has been publishing science fiction from the very beginning of its history with Samuel Butler's, I think it's Air Home, 1935, and Olaf Stapleton's Last and First Men, 1937, incorporating the now world-famous tri-band design. Later science fiction covers through the 60s and 70s were inspired by surrealism, expressionism, psychedelic and pop art, charting science fiction's emergence 
as a literary force while embracing the spirit of its pulp excess. This collection features covers from some of the heavyweights of the genre, H.G. Wells, Aldous Huxley, Philip K. Dick, Kirk Vonnegut, as well as celebrating some of the weirdest and most wonderful cult classics you may or may not have heard of. This collection will make you smile or shake your head in wonder. It is something to be shared and treasured. And that's exactly what I want to do, share it. I've got this box of cards, and what, if you sign up for the Patreon for the $5 deal, I'll send you one of these, I'll write out a little little thing, little ditty, like I did for me son Reed, did I tell you about that? I'll tell you in a, a second, and I'll post it out to you, and like I say, there is some great ones, mind you, and there's, there's even one there, the, the, taps of t- the Traps of Time, Michael Moorcock, edited by Michael Moore, so that must have been a collection, even new one or newish ones, Rudy Rugger, Software, that's in there. And there, man, look at that one, man. Oh, the Date Rain Forever, Ray Bradbury. There's just some great, and like you say, what the introduction said, there's some of them, you know, are bizarre, you know, covers. There. I'm looking at um, a one called Interworld. Just strange, you know, some of them, though, but it's what makes science fiction so special for me. If you want one of these cards, I'll write it out, put your, your thing in, post it in the post for you, and you'll get one. Sign up for the period for five. Five, um, five, um, five dollars. But what I did for Reed, this is where I'm getting the kind of little idea from, is there's somewhere on the internet, and I forget where it was. I'll try and put a link on the website. You can go over there and you can get a postcard wrote from someone in Timbuktu, in, in deepest, darkest Africa. You can get someone to kind of write it out. I think it's actually, it's a, not a company, but it's someone who knows someone over there who set up this little business where... The travel agents in Timbuktu get paid apparently a pittance where I think it cost me $8 to send, to get this postcard sent. And they'll write out a little, a little ditty on the card, send it to wherever you want. And I get, I got one for Reed, my son. And I said, dad's invented faster than light travel. Reed, I says, while you were sleeping, I nipped over to Timbuktu and I posted this postcard, you know what I mean? And sent it and it's come back. And it was today, this is where the whole idea has come from. He, Reed was getting ready for school and he says, Dad, I really love that card. And he's got it pinned on his wall, you know what I mean? And like you say, it's all, it's got the post stamp and the, the you know, the Frank and everything from Timbuktu and, and it's hand wrote as well. So I thought, oh, that's, that's fantastic, that. I think I might be able to do that. And I got this, this box set for Christmas and honestly, I love it, but I would love more to kind of send them out. You know, honestly, my whole goal is just to kind of, Make Starship Sofa better, make the District of Wonders, you know, pain, narrators, do all, you know, all the kind of nonsense I've been blabbling on about for a while there. So this is just another little kind of drip feed to kind of do that. And plus to share these cards, because they're just lovely. So if you want one of these, like I say, sign up for the $5 Patreon, and it's going to make me worth me while. I don't want to kind of be out of pocket. And I'll, I'll write you something on there, and I'll send it to you. How super cool is that? There you go. Shall we play a story? I think we better, shall we? Today's story, like I mentioned earlier on there, is A Song for Asking by Carmelo Raffella. I'll give you a little heads up about Carmelo. Carmelo's work has been published in various venues, including the following anthologies. Like I mentioned, Stories for Chip, a a tribute to Samuel R. Delaney. Submitted for your approval, the anthology of the European SF, the fourth science fiction mega pack, 
Rocket Science and the West Pier Gazette and other stories. His work has recently been translated into Romanian. Go on there. This story, and as well, man, just you'll just sit back and just love this presentation, is narrated by Roberto Suarez. By dear Roberto Suarez works as a community college student advocate and recruiter. By night, he geeks out in all things fantasy and science fiction, comic books and board games. He is the co-host and producer of A Pod of Casts, the Game of Thrones podcast. I like that title. Do you know what I mean? A Pod of Casts. A Game of Thrones. Oh, are yeah, we man? Those ones, those are like cherries from a tree. That's Roberto, that's a, that's a lovely name, that one. And he also does the new Radio Westworld, a podcast dedicated to HBO's latest science fiction series. You can find more about Roberto at the website. There's a link there. And there's a link as well to Roberto's Twitter as well. And like I say, this narration is just beautiful. Beautiful. Just sit back and just enjoy this story. So... The Starship Sova is very proud to present. Song for the Asking by Carmelo Rafala Day 5 Mutiny is a swift predator. Brutal, bloody, an entity without mercy. We had been locked in the hold of the ship for our own safety. From the decks above our heads, shouts, gunshots, and the sound of running echoed down the stairwells and air shafts to pummel the steel door that kept us alive. Me, the boy, the woman in the cage. When the bloodshed is finally over, we are led out and assemble on deck with the remaining crew. A few men, handpicked by Master Autalo, stand with weapons drawn. The bodies of the dead are wrapped in white sheets and carried up on shoulders. As a brother of the church, I am asked to say prayers over the departed, and the dead crewmen are dropped into the sea, one by one. The few who remain loyal to the captain sit in one of the skiffs, now hanging over the side of the ship. Autalo speaks to them in a low, steady voice. Then he steps back, while Jenko and a crewman named Marl, a plump and red-cheeked northern man, lower the craft into the water. Oars in hands, the men push themselves away. Their chances on the open sea are slim. Out here, where the raiders of Estuanin roam. I watch the men row toward certain death and offer them a silent prayer. The boy is looking up at the cargo crane, mouth open, Face ashen. Tied high upon the beam is the captain's bloodied corpse. It is a sign of his shame and Autalo's newfound authority. Avert your eyes, my son, I tell him. He bows his head without a word. I take the boy back near the stern of the ship, behind the bridge tower, where the deep thumping of the engines vibrate through the deck like a heartbeat. He does not look at me, but continues to stare down at the decking. I can sense his fear, and I squeeze his arm gently. Deck gunners are sitting at their weapons, scanning the horizon, and holding positions behind us are the five remaining sister ships of what had once been a convoy of nine, 
Autalo follows us back and slumps against the deck gun, chewing his cigar, deliberating. I do my best to remain impassive. Is there a problem? His cigar smolders between his lips. He looks haggard, but his eyes, bloodshed as they are, are alive with suspicion. You know there is, he says. I paid for transportation and privacy in advance. Your former captain accepted. For you, a boy and a woman. And that is what you have. What I have is a woman under a blanket in a covered cage, Brother Sund. Unlike our captain, I want to know why. Suddenly, a merchant takes issue with the type of cargo he ferries across the deeper sea. How strange. He ignores my quip. Well, brother? So you are a moral man, are you? He folds his arms across his chest. Brother Sund, we've lost three ships and our fair share of comrades. Our captain was not prepared to do what was necessary to protect the men. I am. The subtle threat does not go by me unnoticed. I try not to fidget with my robes. Her semi-conscious state is meditative, I say, self-induced, not chemical. She is processing, normal after periods of heavy tuition. He nods. A seminarian. Yes, I say. The boy looks up at me, his face tinged with unease. Autalo eyes the boy, then me. He chews his cigar some more. So you are saying the cage is for her protection? Yes, appropriate enough, considering her condition and our long journey. He holds up our documents. Your papers could be forgeries. Are you suggesting I am a slave trader? You're not city folk. My ears burn with offense. You are addressing a brother of the Church of the Everlasting, and I serve the abbot of Rik Tarshin with the utmost devotion. Devotion! He turns the word over in his mouth several times. A hinterland convert! Many of you would sell your own daughters if the price was right. Many have done so. If you are as brave as you are bold, I can arrange an audience with the abbot upon our arrival, I say. You may take up any of your meaningless reservations with him. Autalo seems to be deliberating again, then flicks the cigar overboard. Very well, brother Sund. I will take you at your word. You will honor the terms of our original agreement. Yes. I thank him and prod the boy to do the same. Autalo scowls. Remember, brother, that as long as Estuanin's raiders infest these waters, I cannot guarantee your safety. 
The conflicts between the city-states of this region are not my mission. We must be in Riktarshin in seventeen days. Seventeen days, if the raiders allow it. He calls out the new first mate. Jenko! The new first mate is standing near, slicing a piece of apple away from its core with a long knife. He tosses the rest of the fruit away and replaces the blade in the sheath of his boot. Aye, sir. Prepare to get underway. Deck gunners prime their weapons. There is the click of artillery shells locking into place. You know, brother, says Autaro, if we are boarded, I doubt that cage would stop a determined man. I take no responsibility for her. Or the boy. He walks off. The boy utters a deep, trilling sound. He does this when confused or frightened. He does not understand the sounds of our common language any more than I do. But at least he can make these few sounds. I was taken far too young to remember how. The breeze tugs at my cassock. Pulling my robes about me, I glance at the darkening sky. The wind does not carry whispers now. There is no song in its currents, only a deep hissing. The past is a dead heart, my son, I say. We make the sounds of city men now. His voice shakes. Forgive me. I place my hand on his shoulder. Faith teaches us strength. And how do we approach faith? Trust in the church and fealty. These bring us peace of mind. I pinch his arm gently. You would do well to remember your catechism. Despite his lapses, he is a dedicated boy, eager to please. More than what he had been when the authorities in Falk brought him to me, a street urchin an orphan of the hinterlands, living hand-to-mouth like an animal. Much like I had once been before Abbot Diyari had taken me in. And I want to encourage him, guide him with a more gentle hand than I ever knew. I bristle at the memory of my tuition and the scars of penance that still live in deep pink lines across my torso. What's wrong, brother? The boy is peering at my face. I realize I'd been staring at him, and my eyes are filled with tears. Nothing, I say. Just tired, that's all. He stands gazing up at me, considering my answer. I tussle his hair, and he smiles. It makes my heart sing to know that soon, when he completes his first catechism, I will give him a name, just as the abbot had named me. He casts his eyes to the hatch that leads down into the ship, to the hold, and to the caged woman waiting below. The strange woman who does not speak or cry out in her pain. It is forbidden to give a city man's name to an unbeliever, to someone who has not passed through catechism. But she must have an identity. Secretly, I call her Rydra. 
What we bring the abbot is a great prize, I say. The faithful will read about what we've done for ages to come. He says nothing but leans closer to me, as though true comfort lay not only in my words, but in my close physical presence. Like a son to a father. Many mornings I would stand at the back of the great hall in Rik Tarshin to watch the faithful crowd into the sanctuary, watched closely those who would hope to touch a scrap of the robes of Theosis, the first abbot, and acquire wisdom. For a small tithe, some are granted an audience with the skulls of the sacred, remnants of the first great cityman, in the hope of obtaining vitality. I was envious that the abbot had been brought such wonders of the ancient world by brothers who had proved their devotion, and they had been rewarded in various ways as true sons would by a proud father. And so, forsaking comfort and all aid, and with the blessing of the council, I left the cathedral and Rik Tarshin and set out on the pilgrimage. I walked the deserts and prairies of the hinterlands, suffered many hardships, lived frugally, prayed relentlessly. But I never found any holy relics. Day 6 Rydra spends most of her time sleeping. During her semi-conscious moments, I feed her bread dipped in condensed milk. Sometimes she gazes out through half-opened eyes, irises the color of desert sand. I pull the blanket back ever so slightly, and true to his tuition, the boy turns away and does not look upon her exposed flesh. The gas lamp suspended above highlights a network of cuts and bruises. Her skin is pale, ghostly. Her hair, as white and as clean as fresh linen, flows softly about her shoulders. Without turning his head, the boy hands me a cloth dabbed with ointment. As I clean her arms, the boy begins to chant the Creed of Theosis. I listen carefully as I work. When he is finished, I smile with satisfaction. He's remembered every line, every word. Reaching behind Rydra, I brush the graces there, careful to avoid the two distinct folds of skin that run the length of her back on either side of her spine. They look like layers of calluses, folded in on each other. The wounds bleed a little as the scabs come free. I don't know where she was found or how she came to be in a slaver's market, but I understand for what purpose she would have been sold. I first set eyes upon the woman while traveling back to my parish in Falk. Taking a short route through the valley, I passed through the town of Mordia. The slave market bustled and stank of blood and feces. Slavers shouted above the din. And there she was, a hinterland woman lying on a slaver's cart, naked, unmoving, bruised body chained to the wooden flatbed, wrists bound. Her breathing was so shallow I'd almost mistaken her for dead. 
and something stirred within me, a deep pain I had not known before. I hadn't thought of my mother since being sent away to Falk, but I thought of her in that moment, a slight woman, flowing yellow hair and a smile like rays of sun. What I did next shocked even me. I took my leather purse, pregnant with the tithes of desperate believers, and dropped that hefty bag of coins at the slaver's feet. It was only later that I came to recognize the type of binds that tied her wrists together, numinous cords from ancient days, fashioned by the first city-men to bring low the people of cloud and air, our ancestors, the people of the hinterlands. As I finish cleaning her wounds, I am struck by a sudden awareness. She is awake. Sitting back on my haunches, I stare down at her face, her ethereally beautiful face. She is looking beyond me, to the boy. She tries to lift herself up on one elbow and flops back upon the floor of the cage. It's time, my son, I say. The boy sighs heavily, then passes back to me a small ceramic demitas. Taking a small bottle from my satchel, I pour out the correct amount of sedative. As I bring the cup to her lips, she turns her head, and her whole body convulses violently. I pull back, spilling some of the sedative on my robes. Brother? The boy wants to turn around. Stay as you are. Her chest heaves and she pushes herself into a sitting position. Swaying like a drunkard, she holds out her bound wrists to me. Can she see the fear in my face? I cannot tell. Her expression is unreadable. She collapses to the floor again. Hands shaking, I pick up the sedative bottle and pour out another measure. The boy, back still turned, has become anxious and whimpers something, some tonal phrasing. The woman looks to him and puffs air from her mouth, a series of subtle, breathy sounds, as if trying to respond. Day 9 We lost another ship in the night. In the morning, the cramped mess hall heaves with boatmen lining up for breakfast. The men do not speak. Silent lifts between them, a reflective, solemn quiet. Receiving our bowls, I lead the boy to a long table, where Autalo sits at its head. He motions to an empty space near his end of the table, and I sit, the boy squeezing in next to me. I ask about the missing ship, the Sea Dawn. Autalo chews his food, but does not look up. Brother Sund! If our aid would have changed the situation, I would have ordered it so. That ship was hit hard with concentrated weapons fire. A generator was knocked out, the engines were a hopeless pile of scrap, and they were bleeding fuel. What of the men on that ship? Autaro looks into his bowl. I gave the order to cut loose. You mean you fled? The men stiffen, spoons frozen in midair. Autalo fixes me with an icy glare. And what would you have me do, brother, with these simple 
cargo carriers, attack raiders, survival is the first order. Captain never would have left comrades behind, says a man named Christ. A few men mutter amongst themselves. Autalo points his spoon at the man. You are here, mister, for one obvious reason. Lack of space in the skiff. You would do well to keep that in mind. And I am grateful you spared my life by allowing me to remain aboard, says Christ. But he was our captain, by law. His brother died on one of the ships we lost. He was mad with grief. If given more time, we could have talked him down. He was almost ready to listen. Almost is too late, says Autalo. We needed to act. And I will not waste any more time explaining that simple fact to you. There are voices of agreement prodded along by Jenko's agitations. The boy speaks. But you have bigger ships. Uh, theirs are small. And built for speed, says Autalo. The boy nods slowly. Ships that small need a supply chain way out here, boy, says Jenko. Our former captain said he knew of a depot in this region, the Uvalo Atoll. He wanted to storm it, break the chain. But these men are merchants, boy, Autalo adds, not military. Tis true, that is, says Marl, the fat northern man. Other men raise their voices in agreement. You are men of Rik Tarshin, I say. Appeal to the council. They will provide you escorts. Christ scoffs. Just like that, hey? You've been away a long time, brother. And this conversation is over. Autalo glares at him. Christ thrusts his spoon into his bowl, stirring its contents rather violently. The abbots once raised armies to subdue the new lands and to apply and uphold the law among citymen. Christ! And what do they do now? Collect remnants of ancient days to remind themselves of how impressive they once were? And while they brood on past glory, the world they built collapses upon itself. Autalo slams his fist on the table. The boy flinches. I place my hand upon his leg to calm him. Master Jenko, he says, take this man into custody. Assemble the crew on deck in one hour, to watch Christ receive punishment for insubordination. Aye, sir. Jenko rises from his chair, hand on his holstered weapon. Christ glares at Autalo across the table. Then he puts his spoon down gently and gets up. Jenko escorts him from the room. Some men exchange hard glances. Others continue eating slowly, cautiously, as though waiting for something. Utensils scrape bowls. The ship gently rocks. No one utters a word. It remains like this for some time. It is the boy's voice, soft and melodic, that first breaks the silence. The raiders. How many are there? If we're vigilant, says Autalo, and disciplined, we shall make it through. Not to worry, lad, 
says Marl. The brother will pray to the everlasting for us. Maybe those rider bullets will simply pass us by. Some of the men snicker. I clear my throat. I am always happy to offer prayer, individually or corporately. See here, says the fat crewman. You really want to offer something. Why don't you rouse that girly to give us a dance? The men, seemingly revived by the jolly spirit of this fat man, whoop and clank their spoons to the sides of their tin bowls. The seminarian never dances, says the boy indignant. He looks to me. She processes. Ah! The fat boatman chuckles. Well, you think, Captain Otalu, you can give me permission to go down there. I got some of me own processing I'd like to do. The men roar with laughter. Take no notice of our bloated comrade, boy. Autalo leans forward. After pulling a double shift and enjoying half rations tonight, Marl is going to scrub the sanitary closets. The men jeer loudly at the fat boatman and bang their fists on the table. Day 11 The wail of the siren penetrates through the body of the great ship and down into the hold. Guns rumble overhead. There is a muffled explosion and the vessel shudders. The boy looks uneasy as he did in the early days of our journey before he found his sea legs. I'm pouring out a measure of sedative when Rydra utters a discordant note. I drop the cup and throw myself back against the bars of the cage. She speaks, I whisper. By the everlasting, she speaks. Another explosion, this one nearer and louder. The ship rocks violently and the boy utters something. It is the sound of fear. Rydra reacts to the boy, calls to him in a long, drawn-out wail, a sound so lamentable, gooseflesh rises on my arms. The boy cocks an ear and wraps both arms around his chest. He is terrified of her, the guns, or both. In this mad rushing moment, I cannot tell. The ship pitches to one side. I grab hold of the bars in an effort to remain upright. The boy falls sideways, howling as he hits the deck. And Rydra reacts, letting out a riotous screeching, like a bow dragged across the strings of a violin. It is so loud and so terrible, I'm almost deafened by the noise as it slices through my head. The boy claps hands over his ears. She does this several times, until she falls unconscious again. Day 12 All right, says Autalo. I want to know who you really are and what the hell you've brought aboard my ship. Wisps of black smoke roll across the deck in slow, phantom motions, strangely illuminated by the orange and gold of the morning sun. A ship, the Marigold, is badly damaged and sits close to our port side. When everything had calmed, Autalo's armed men had stormed the hold and dragged us all topside. The armed men now keep their distance, weapons cradled in their arms. Christ and the gunners stand at their posts, frozen with uncertainty. 
I am Brother Sund, I say, from Falk. And this is a seminarian, he points to the woman lying unconscious on the deck. He covers her with his long coat. Jenko is leaning forward, as though about to step out of his own overcoat. By his side is the boy on one knee. He has the child gripped firmly by the arm. The boy's eyes appeal to me for help. I hold up my hand to him and make the sign of faith. Brother Sund, says Autalo, I will not ask you again. I am who I say I am. The abbot will vouch for me. And who will vouch for her? says Jenko, letting the boy go. He rushes me, grips my robes, and sobs quietly. What creature makes a sound like that? says Autalo. A sound to freeze the spirit and send men running. Like the boy, I too am frozen with fear. Brother, Autalo continues, we had twelve raider ships bearing down on us. Twelve! And when they heard that sound, and it was heard as though it thundered from the very air around us, they turned and fled. I didn't know. I didn't know, I babble, that she could speak. I thought her mute. I didn't know. Brother, says Autalo. The very tone of his voice is a threat. I try to compose myself. I am a brother of the church, and she is... And she is Sermulus, Jenko says the ancient word, ancient in the tongue of citymen. The crewmen speak in terrified whispers. The elemental peoples of the hinterlands, Chris says wildly, brought low, kept in a cage, ancient from the time of the first citymen? This is what you bring the abbot? This? Crewmen shout, Kill it! Kill it! Panic overtakes me. No, those binds are holy and will keep her grounded. We are in no danger. I look to Autalo. I thought she was mute. There is a shuffling of feet. I can see fear in every weather-beaten line of the men's faces. Autalo sees it too and signals his armed men. They move among the crew cautiously gripping their weapons as they go. It is foolhardy to keep her on board, says Christ. You must get rid of her. Shut up, Autalo snaps. Marl bounds through the hatch and onto the deck. He rushes to Jenko, places something in his hands, speaks in a low voice. Jenko looks at it, then holds the sedative bottle up for all to see. I suppose, brother Sund, she is quite passive. At least for the time being, yes? I nod, slowly. Autalo and Jenko exchange knowing glances. My eyes move from one to the other, searching their faces. The boy, Autalo says to me. You said he cried out, and that's when she began to speak. Yes, I say. Autalo casts his gaze out to the still morning waters. Master Jenko, 
called the bridge. I want to know how far we've traveled from the Uvalu Atoll. Jenko hands him the bottle and moves to the intercom. Marl, says Autalo, put the boy in my cabin. Secure him there. I pull the child closer to me and hug him fiercely. The burning in my lungs reminds me to breathe. Whatever your intentions, I beg you, keep the boy out of it. Chris' face is pale. You think you can control a creature like that, Captain? No, he says. But our passengers can. They've been doing it for weeks. He twists the bottle between his fingers. With this. I didn't know she could speak, I protest, and the boy doesn't understand. Marl pulls the boy from me. The child struggles, begins to squawk. Autalo steps over and grips his jaw. No talking, he says, until I say so. You wouldn't want anything. He pulls out his gun and points it at the woman's head. Unfortunate to happen to the woman. The boy looks to me for help, tears streaming from his beautiful eyes. I want to speak words of comfort to him, but they fail to come from my mouth. The boy's shoulders droop forward, and he hangs his head, breath sporadic through quiet sobs. He allows himself to be led below. My stomach twists. Captain, I implore you, honor our agreement, please. He ignores me. Medic! A small man comes forward. The woman goes back to her cage and take care of this. He hands over the sedative. It's vital the drug is administered at the correct times. Brother soon will assist you. The medic calls to another man and together they lift her gently from the deck. I watch her being carried slowly to the hatch. Jenko returns. The atoll is eight days away, north by northwest. Six days at full speed. Fuel reserves are fine. We can do it. Signal the marigold. She is to continue her course away from here, he says. The venture will be her escort and provide cover. Inform the Daystar and Asoria to remain with us. We're going back. Back? Christ says, Autalo, Captain, you are deceived. Autalo sneers. What's the matter, Christ? You fought with our former captain against the raiders. Now suddenly, you don't have the belly for it? The armed men chuckle at this. The crew smile nervously and hold on to their belts. Christ sidles up to Autalo. You'll still have an inquest to face if we make landfall. Don't forget that. I won't. Autalo considers him for only a moment and then breaks the man's nose. Day 17 I am not allowed to be alone with Rydra. An armed guard stays with me in the hold. When he is needed to attend to other duties, I am locked in a sanitary closet. Rydra makes no sound in her semi-conscious state but stares with empty eyes at the spot where the boy used to sleep. She keeps her back to me. I finish administering balms to Rydra's wounds and close and lock the door to her cage. The medic takes from me the key, the sedative, the salves, 
and the cloth and puts them in my satchel. He slings the bag over his shoulder and leaves. The guard suddenly snaps to attention. Autalo is standing in the doorway. The guard greets the captain with a salute. He salutes you, I say. So this is a military operation now. Autalo rolls a cigar between his teeth. I want to see the boy, I say. He sucks hard and blows out a puff of thick white smoke. I should choose my words carefully, but the affront to my person chokes me with indignation. I cannot, in good conscience, be a willing part of this, nor can I allow good conscience. Autalo takes slow, deliberate strides toward me. You hardly have the moral high ground here. He points a finger at Rydra. You came aboard under false pretenses and talked to me of good conscience. I feel my cheeks flush. I merely withheld information for a very good reason. You people have no good reasons for anything you do. I said you're not city folk, didn't I? I'm consumed by both my failings in these matters and my resentment that he could so callously dismiss me. I am a brother of the Church of the Everlasting, he spits out. So you've said. Raised in a rectory at Rick Tarshin, instructed by Abbot Diari himself, but still not a city man. And I will not allow you... I swallow my next words for I know how hollow they will sound. Autalo leans casually against the doorframe. I obviously amuse him. A hinterland convert, he shakes his head, who heads a mission in Falk. Falk. Not exactly a place of inspiration. But you have done one good deed, convert though unintentionally. You've created for me an incredible opportunity. You took command to save the men. I understand that, he grunts. I'm still going to save the men, and many more. We're heading for the atoll. No doubt it will be heavily guarded. If you want to survive this and take back your trophy to the Abbot, you'll cooperate. You don't have a choice in the matter. Captain Autalo, please, for the love of the everlasting, don't do this. Stop this madness. Yes, he says, for the love of the everlasting, I will stop this madness. He shuts and bolts the door. I've never overseen mass conversions to the faith nor contributed to the sacred history of the church through pilgrimage. I'd been assaulted by my hinterland brethren on more than one occasion, endured a volley of stones, and fled a mob under cover of darkness to a neighboring village, shameful incidences which had me recalled to the rectory to give account of myself. Considering my many difficulties, Abbot Diari decided it best to send me away to Falk, 
I begged him to reconsider. Falk was a small community, safe, reliable in its meager but steady support, conservative, uninteresting. He told me our talents and our appointments must not be mutually exclusive, that they must complement each other. I resisted and declared there was so much more I wanted to do, so much more I could do, for the church, for him. He told me yes, yes, there was, and I would do it in Falk. Day 19 The ship's portside guns thunder into the dying light of day. Raider ships are there, black needles cutting through the water, advancing upon our convoy with great speed. The medic helped me guide Rydra up on deck. We are escorted by two guards. Jenko is there, holding the port railing as the ship rises and falls. A storm is brewing. A thin rain sprays our faces. The Daystar and the Azoria begin fanning out, forcing the enemy line to fracture. A group of raider ships break away and head straight for us. Jenko signals the crewman, who disappears into a hatch. The boy is brought on deck, struggling in Marl's clutches. What are you doing? I say, cradling Rydra with one arm. Jenko waves to the men, who haul the boy across the deck and tie him to the cargo crane. Marl works a lever. The arm rises up, the boy dangles there, howling discordant notes. The horror of perception grips me. Jenko, no! Rydra, eyes half open, turns her head to the boy and twists in an attempt to break free. The medic stumbles, crashes into the railing, taking me and Rydra with him. The raiders are closing on us. Sporadic gunfire lights up the night. The Asoria is on fire. A speaker crackles, and Autalo's voice booms through the air. Target atoll! Dead ahead! All hands ready! We're going to make a break for it! I can just make out Autalo at the bridge window. He turns and says something to the helmsman. I feel the engines increasing their pounding. We pick up speed, pulling ahead of the other two carriers. I begin to tremble, not just my hands or legs, but my entire body. I feel as if I am suffocating. I see my prize slip away, a revered place among my honored brothers denied, and the proud father turning his back on me, as he did all those years ago. I stare at the boy. A cold, slow fear drips down my body, trickles over my scars. I cry out, Give me my son! Jenko signals Marl. He turns the wheel and the crane arm rotates and swings out over the sea. The boy's panic-stricken song pierces through the sounds of crashing waves. Rydra convulses and looks up, eyes now wide, and from her throat comes a terrible sound, deep, dissonant, like a church organ growling. Jenko comes over, one hand resting on the pistol holstered at his side. The medic's face is a sheet of white. I'll take her! Jenko reaches out and grips Rydra's arm. The medic moves back to stand with the guards. Jenko shakes her with fury. Come on, you monster! You can do better than that! Swallowing the bile in my throat, I gather my courage and shove my elbow into Jenko's face. He lets go of Rydra and stumbles back. The woman wobbles and falls over, and I let her weight take me with her. Before he can act, I reach out, snatch the long blade from the sheath on his boot, and cut the holy binds around her wrists. Now free, she loses the pale color of her nakedness, and her body changes, becomes less substantial, almost translucent, as though she is but a wisp of illuminated cloud. 
She draws herself up to her full height. The soft features of her face alter, and she is something altogether different, a creature both beautiful and terrifying. In one swift motion, Rydra extends her arms at the elbows, flexes her fingers, and from her body comes a great swooshing sound, as though a gas primer had just been lit. A wall of air, only visible by its trail across the water, speeds outward to shatter the advancing raider ships into kindling. Gunners abandon their posts and run for the deckhouse midship. Jenko sways between rage and horror. He pulls out his pistol, but I spring up to block his aim. Knife still in my hand, he must think I'm trying to kill him. There is a popping noise, and my shoulder explodes with fire. The vessel heaves up under me, and my face hits the cold, wet deck. A scream. I look up, just in time to see Jenko and the armed guards being flung overboard in a gust of wind. Three more armed men stumble forward and raise their weapons. Rydra emits one discordant sound, a grinding of notes, and the men are hurled against the bulkhead of the deckhouse. Cracked skulls smear red and gray across white paint. Autalo is scrambling down the stairs of the bridge tower, rifle in hand. He stops, lets off a warning shot into the air, and continues down. Rydra ignores him, and me, and moves towards the crane and the boy, still hanging over the sea, crying and wailing. Marl has no chance. With a flex of her fingers, Rydra sends him flying into the storm. Stop! Autalo runs ahead of her, lets off another shot. She halts and looks at him, ice slits. He begins to walk backward, slowly towards the crane controls. Working the crane's wheel, he swings the boy back over the deck. The child hangs there, crying in fractured arpeggios. I pull myself to my knees. The sleeve of my robe is heavy with warm blood. Pain travels in waves down my arm. The sea near us is full of debris and dead bodies. The other raider groups are concentrating on our sister ships in the distance behind us. The Daystar is taking heavy fire. The Asoria is listing. In minutes, she will sink. Autalo remains where he stands, rifle in hand. Rydra's throat grumbles with dark tones. Captain, I say into the rain. I'm sorry. His face is pregnant with loathing. You filthy hinterland son of a bitch. I can hear the rifle cock. The creases on either side of Rydra's spine ripple. In a motion as rapid and fluid as a bird's, she extends great wings, thin membranes that glow with a silver-white light. I swallow a deep helping of air, like an infant taking its first breath of life. If terror has gripped Autalo, he doesn't show it. Autalo is no fool. He knows the convoy is lost. His hope has died, along with all the souls he's needlessly committed to the deep. There is nothing he can do now, except, maybe, flee the area, and if we make it home, face an inquest for murder and mutiny. I should kill you, son! He raises the rifle, but he aims it at the boy. Rydra rushes him with a speed that is inhuman, lifts him up into the air. The gun goes off, a shot into the darkness. They hover above the ship for only a few seconds, then she pulls him up into the sky with her, into the whirling tempest, wings flapping furiously. His screams are lost in a cacophony of cyclonic arpeggios. Day 31 A gull cries somewhere overhead and the smell of land is in the air. Our vessel limps toward the dock at Rick Tarshin, bleeding smoke, 
engines emitting a sickly groan. My shoulder still aches. The medic could not remove the bullet, but at least he has stopped the bleeding. Christ is in command now. Christ, the man with the broken nose, who stood by one doomed captain and stood up against another. And we've received no word of the Marigold or the venture. Days of anxious sailing, and we finally met up with another convoy. Together, we made landfall only once, at a small port town whose name escapes me. A few crewmen got off. The boy went with them. The boy I'd care for, nurtured. The boy I'd hoped, one day, would be a seminarian, a scholar of the faith, and ordained as a brother, the son of a proud father. I hang high above the deck now, tied to the cargo crane. As the ship nears the dock, I cannot cast my eyes upon the rectory, standing tall and proud on a hillside. But I can almost feel its heavy shadow reaching out to me. And I know Abot Diyadi will be there, waiting, that foreign man who instructs me in strange ways and guides me with strange motives and calls me son. Sweet arpeggios, swift and bright, the language of my people, the people of the hinterlands, play along the gusts that come forward to touch my beaten face and taunt my ears. I rest my head into the wind, wishing I knew how to respond. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Carmelo is Carmelo. What can I say? Big, big thank you. Thank you so much. And Roberto, listen, we need you back on the show. Get a, more of your dulcet tones singing from our airwaves. That'll be lovely. So that is today's show. Like I say, if you want to join, you know, Patreon, there's a little kind of treat there for you. If you sign up for the $5 mark, I will handwrite. It's not very pretty, my handwriting, but I'll handwrite and post you out a postcode. I have a hundred of these sitting there waiting to share the world. Some great covers. Come on, do the right thing. Get yourself a postcard and it'll make me actually sit down and do some writing, which I've never done for a long, long time. So big thank you to everyone who's helped put the show together. Jeremy, always there, there, sir. Thank you very much, my editor over there in Australia. Big thank you, Jeremy. To David Bradshaw, this fantastic music that we're now playing as well. There's a link on the David's site as well. To Kamalo and Roberto for the help in the story and writing the story. Just fantastic. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening. I don't get out much I've barely left the ground I'm tuning in to your transmissions I'm moving, waiting to be found And I'm building rockets I'm pointing them to the moon But the work is going slowly Anytime soon, can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. 
get my say. I might already be on to you and on my way, but you're so far from here, and at best I'm moving slow. So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. I wanna talk to you. Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there.